when I left, I left the institution, I was very nervous that I wouldn't be able to get anyone, you know, who's going to want to come to some meeting when they have their private practice that they're running. And everyone was really actually craving it. Um, the first meeting we had was a year ago and we ended up getting 10 people. You're listening to the Tongue Tie Experts podcast, a weekly program providing information and support for those families impacted by tongue and lip tie and the professionals caring for them. I'm Lisa Palladino, a midwife and a lactation consultant with over 30 years of experience. If you are a parent looking for answers or a professional who is curious to learn more than what you learned in school on this topic, welcome. This podcast is for you. A gentle disclaimer, please do not consider anything discussed on this podcast by myself or any guest of the podcast to be medical advice. The information is provided for educational purposes only and does not take the place of your own medical or lactation provider. Thank you. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Tongue Tie Experts podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Palladino, and today I am with my friend and colleague, Christina Goodhart. Welcome, Christina. Hello. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. We've been trying to get together for so long, and we see each other professionally. We talk to each other a few times a week, and we've been scheduling this and unscheduling it, so I'm so glad it finally worked out. I had to pin you down. Yes, Um, yes. Christina's tied up in the background. No, just kidding. Um, (laughs) um, So Christina, just because I know so much about you and your history and where, where you've come from professionally and personally, but tell, tell our audience about what you do. Um, You're a speech language pathologist and much more. So just give us a little background, introduce yourself. Uh, So uh, my name is Christina Goodhart and I've been a speech therapist for more than 10 years, I'll say. And um, I have specialty training in swallowing disorders. I am a board certified swallowing specialist, and that's a national certification. I'm one of the only people in my local area that has that. I also am trained in cranial sacral therapy. I took four levels of upledger in-person classes and an additional virtual class in that. I've been practicing for four years now. Um, I also do fees, which is a swallow study where you put a camera up a patient's nose. And I have kind of niched out that I specialize in myofunctional disorders. So I help dentists support patients in expansion, um, people with sleep apnea across the age spectrum from pediatric to adult. And I feel like with my background, I have a lot of years in the hospital. I have a lot of medical experience and information and knowledge. So it definitely pairs well with uh, patients getting surgery on their jaw or their teeth. And uh, I feel like we get really good outcomes. Um, I also am very, very pro interdisciplinary participation. I don't think we initially started that way in medicine. I think it was very siloed. You went to each subspecialist and you as the patient kind of had to put everything together. Um, I was trained at a few different facilities where interdisciplinary 
was the, you know, the, the pride and the joy of the institutions. So that really was fostered into me. And the outcomes we get with the patients doing interdisciplinary care is is tremendous because everyone knows and respects what the other person does. So they yeah. refer yeah. more appropriately. I, I think- you know, it's it's just it's amazing the difference we could get. Yeah. So we'll talk more about that in a minute. I just want to like pause and say um, to those listening, you can hear why I would be thrilled to have a colleague locally in Christina to uh, review cases with, to collaborate on patients with, um, in my own personal life, even, you know, to help care for my grandson who everybody's heard about my grandson's challenges. Um, So you know, I'm referring to someone who has a medical background, yet she also has this knowledge of how the tongue function affects the whole body. And that CST coming in is just another bonus. And in case there's something underlying going on medically that I'm not picking up, Christina will catch it, which is, which is like a safety net for me. So this is a perfect relationship. And I want you know, for those out there who are IBCLCs and SLPs, you should definitely find someone. I mean, this is like, I don't usually say definite, but it's, to me, it's imperative for each of us, each IBCLC to have an, a trusted SLP and vice versa mm-hmm. to collaborate with. And I think that in the past, there's been some contention among or between our professional, you know, in general, yeah. between our professions. And I think I can speak on where that came from for me, <laughs> um, but it did also come from what you were talking about, our learning in silos, you know, and and I get excited when I hear somebody else talking about that because that's something, as you know, that I always lecture about, about how it's too late to learn separately. We have to learn together. But the reason why I had this feeling was there was when I worked at the hospital and I worked at the hospital for 28 years, if I was called to assist a baby in the nursery and that baby needed an SLP evaluation, the SLP always downplayed this particular person downplayed the breastfeeding relationship and made it like it was a silly extra thing that I was trying to do with the parent. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are quite a few of us IBCLCs who had this idea because we worked hospital-based with SLPs who didn't, who learned a long time ago. Yep. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> and didn't have the the knowledge that we had that the SLP is going to ruin the breastfeeding relationship. And I was afraid to even refer or, or ask a question to the SLP because her answer was always give a bottle. Yeah. You know, and so- that's where my bias comes from, I but think I'm glad generationally that generationally too, the yeah. speech therapists I met that were m- more experienced in the field, a lot of them didn't. They, culturally, we weren't really enforced to breastfeed. Like I'm the first successful breastfeeder in my own family, so I feel like, mm-hmm. and of my Me friends, too. <laughs> of my <laughs> friends too, like not not a lot. They either didn't struggle, so it was just like natural to them, and it was within their family. But uh, professionally, not a lot of the pediatric speech therapists I interacted with did breastfeed. There was only like mm-hmm. a handful of them that I could really go to mm-hmm. to talk to about it, as I was learning about it before I even had my own kids. So, right. Um, so similar with nursing, like when I was working on the baby friendly hospital uh, <laughs> hospital initiative at my at the hospital, 
the um, nurses who didn't breastfeed had didn't have as much motivation as those who did. So it was, it was odd. It was an odd thing because our personal feelings often get mixed up in what we know is best professionally, yeah. which is sad, but it, we're human, right? So a little aside of how I actually know Christina for many, many years before she really knew who I was is that when I was working on that baby friendly hospital initiative project, the person who was doing my statistics and all the computer analysis and all, you know, helping us track everything was Christina's mom, Amory, who is an amazing computer person and stats expert, you know, self-trained from necessity and wonderful friend. And we were together every day for probably about 10 years. And I heard about Christina's path. I heard about, you know, First she was a little girl and then she was going to college and then she was, oh, she, oh, and then one day she came in and I was introduced to her and here she was this grown up girl working in the hospital as an SLP. So that's our past history together. I've known you forever, but you don't, you didn't know who I was, but I knew who you were. (laughs) I knew who you were as I was getting into the swallowing though, because my mom, I would talk about babies and how I wanted to specialize in babies. I think it's so fascinating. And she would tell me about you having all this experience with breastfeeding. And I was like, well, I I definitely need to get paired up with her when I'm done with school. And, and, and look what happened. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then I, I feel like, and I want to talk about our journeys too, because I mean, the, the topic of today is collaboration and networking and putting teams together and building community around taking care of all ages on the spectrum, but especially in my scope, infants with breastfeeding difficulty with tongue tie, lip tie, oral restrictions, getting up until airway and, um, you know, it all interconnects because it's all related and getting the professionals on board. So you have done an amazing job. And that's why I asked you to talk on this because we have this, I don't know, grassroots kind of thing going and growing in our community that I think is a great model for other communities. A little background for those who don't know, um, and I hope I don't insult anybody who's listening who's from Staten Island, but we have to explain a little bit about how Staten Island is, right? (laughs) So Staten Island is geographically (laughs) isolated, as I like Mm -hmm. to say, part of New York City, but separate from New York City. Mm -hmm. And a little bit more rural, a little bit less exposed to things that happen in the big city. Um, Very close because there's always been great lactation stuff going on in New York City for years and years, midwifery stuff going on in New York City. And when people hear I'm from New York City, they're like, oh, you're so lucky. And I'm like, but no, because I'm from Staten Island. And I was like, you know, before me, there was one group of midwives, um, after me, there's almost no midwives right now. Um, I was the first IBCLC and I possibly still the only private practice IBCLC on Staten Island. I wasn't the first on Staten Island. Maybe I was the third, but the other two worked at the hospital. Yeah. So this is not, you know, this is paving the way. So when I started learning about tongue tie, I didn't have anybody locally to talk about this with. And I get this from so many of you listening have reached out to me and said this to me. Like I, 
I, I don't have anyone to talk to about it. I don't have anyone to refer to. I don't have anybody to collaborate with. And that's where we were. So I was in my silo that way. You were in your silo that way. Yeah. What happened to, to blossom it into what we have now? Have you ever wished you could help that mom who is questioning if she has enough milk? Ever wanted to either reassure her or know when to refer? As a lactation consultant, I created the program Understanding Milk Supply for Medical and Birth Professionals to help you to feel more confident in those exact situations. This affordable recorded video mini course is open to anyone who works with pregnant or breastfeeding families. It's a particularly valuable opportunity if you're an SLP or an OT who wants to gain an understanding of how breast milk is made or a dentist in the field who is often the first line provider for tongue tie treatment. The function of the infant at the breast depends on milk supply. Even if care of the mom isn't in your scope, there are basic principles that you can learn that may rescue a family's feeding goals. In Understanding Milk Supply, I teach you what red flags to look for, when to refer, who to refer to, and how to advise the family in the meantime. And there's one LSERP included for lactation professionals. Go to www.tongtieexperts.net slash milk supply. The link is clickable in the show notes. And as always, you can use coupon code PODCAST15 to save 15% off this and all Tongue Tie Experts courses. Thanks so much. So when I first took the myofunctional class, I was working primarily with adults. So like 80% of my week was adults and then the rest was pediatric. And I realized that a lot of the adult patients that were coming in with recurrent issues were restricted. So I tried talking to them about it and I got a lot of pushback of like, you know, what you're saying makes no sense. They, they're adults. That's something we do in babies. And I was like, well, I'm glad you're acknowledging we do it in babies. But they, the, a couple of the patients were literally tied to the tip of their tongue. They had no functional movement at all. And, you know, two or three of them before I left the hospital ended up getting released. And a lot of their symptoms improved. They were sleeping better, breathing better, eating better. They weren't choking as much. Um, and I feel like that helped me realize like I, I needed to break out of the hospital. And from taking that class and trying to, I tried to have meetings with other physicians to tech, talk to them about the new training I had taken and how I wanted to try to have this like one-on-one direct communication like we do with the, you know, they, a lot of hospitals have clinics where they do, you know, you go for a specific diagnosis and the whole team sees you. You go for the clinic. Everyone talks about your specific case. You get very specific guided care with everyone's input at one time instead of all separate appointments. I remember that when, because my daughter was born with a cleft lip. Yeah. And we went to the cleft team and we had to, we, I mean, it was a minor procedure and it was a minor cleft lip and this worked for cleft lips and cleft palates and complicated cases, but we had to go through the system. I had to talk to a a psychologist. I had to talk to an SLP. I had to talk, but no, at that time, nobody looked under her tongue. So that's another story. (laughs) But but that model of you have the dentist, the oral surgeon, the medical person, the psych person, or the emotional support person all 
going through. So that that's a great model that we should all strive for. Yeah. So I tried <laughs> so. to facilitate that and I kept hitting a lot of dead ends. You know, it mm-hmm. wasn't something they understood. They didn't have time. They had other projects. And I always thought because we were a part of one organization, it would be easy to get everyone together. So when I decided mm-hmm. to leave the organization and I decided to see what I could do in the community, I thought it would be even harder to get people to want to come together. So when I left, I left the institution, I was very nervous that I wouldn't be able to get anyone, you know, who's going to want to come to some meeting when they have their private practice that they're running. And everyone was really actually craving it. Um, The first meeting we had was a year ago, and we ended up getting 10 people that came. Um, We got orthodontists, three pediatric dentists. Uh, Lisa came, we had our IBCLC and we had about four or five speech therapists that came. I think, I hope that adds up to 10. But so we Mm -hmm. had a nice, a nice group. And I, you know, oh, and an ENT, an ENT came. Mm -hmm. And I was so thrilled that a physician came because I felt like most of the pushback I got was from physicians. So Mm -hmm. um, we had a really nice discussion about uh, what the purpose of the group would be. Uh, to try to come together, talk about new research that's published and try to outline cases that go poorly or cases that go well. So we could all learn about what each other does. And then the second meeting, we had uh, more people show up. It was about 18. And a dentist came who was an oral surgery fellow that then went into pediatrics instead. Her and the ENT and one of the other release providers had a conversation about lip ties. And it Mm -hmm. turns out that it's not always comfortable for someone to release a lip in with a scissor because there is more bleeding and, you know, there sometimes there's not a lot of research that supports whether it has to be done. And, you know, there's a lot of debate currently in the field, too, about, you know, when should it be done? Shouldn't it be done? I feel like there's still pushback when we want one done. But they had a really nice conversation about how. They, the dental providers were saying they found that sending the babies for therapy, they sometimes felt like they didn't see the, the need for a release. And mm-hmm. then the ENT started sending people for therapy. So that's great because, you know, sometimes you hear that the parent has pain, the parent has discomfort, the parent's milk supply is affected, and we send to the IBCLC. And sometimes it's on the parent side, things they're doing to support their milk supply, the schedule they're following. But sometimes it is the baby's latch. And if we release it, like, you know, sometimes they still continue with that old motor plan. The motor plan doesn't Mm -hmm. just naturally always change. And they found for some of the babies, they were able to, we, you know, we didn't release them for over a year. So they were older. We were able to do a lot more with them. And they did a very successful year of eating with this nice, pre- precisely timed release. The parent was prepared. It wasn't this like immediate thing that we just did and they had to catch up. You know, I feel like it was a lot of everyone was invested then in the release at the time. And right. from that meeting, we fostered that outside of our little circle. You know, we, right. we were able to show because the end of the year, we ended with like 30 people at the meeting. Mm-hmm. And so let's go back, let's go back, back, back to interest. An interesting thing happens along the way because, you know, for years I had to refer all my babies off of Staten Island. Mm-hmm. And then you made a relationship with the pedi- pediatric dentist here who had also reached out to me, but I was skeptical 
because I'm very skeptical. Anything new, yeah. And, um, you know, I don't like, and, and my patients know this, I don't refer to anyone who's, who's, for lack of a better word, work, I haven't witnessed. Yes. Right? So, so I am very, very protective of who I refer to. I'm very selective and protective of my patients when I'm making a referral. Yes. So if I haven't seen somebody do a release, I am not going to send a baby to that office for a release. Yes. So that makes things difficult. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you made a relationship with someone and started telling me, so how did that connection first happen? So, um, it's, I, if I remember correctly, I was put in touch with that provider after some, uh, helping someone else and they wanted that mm-hmm. provider was going to be taking the training and they wanted me to, you know, they, they told the provider, Christina knows everything about that. You should really talk right. to her before you jump into this because right, there's, right. there's a lot of uh, debate in that field. So we- so I, I love this because I feel like we're showing people how these connections like can grow organically. Yeah. And right. I mean, and the so the first so you start a relationship with him. He invites me to coffee and I was still like, oh, listen, you're a nice guy, but. Until I see your work, yep. <laughs> I'm not sending anybody. And then he had a, we had a mutual patient who's, um, the, they were already using him as a dentist, I think, uh-huh. or some, somehow this was the dentist they were going to use. Mm-hmm. They weren't going to use anyone else. So they had gone for a, um, an evaluation and he said on his end, he thought it, the procedure needed to be done. I did the work with them on the lactation side and I went with them for the procedure. Mm-hmm. So so this is how things grow organically. So if you have nobody, realize that there is somebody, you just haven't met them yet in most cases. Well, that's, right? Because this, I this was going on. He was doing releases and I didn't even know it. Yeah. Because it's really hard, again, because we live – and work in silos. Yes. Right. The silos, we have to break the silo. We do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then I went, for, I went with him, right? So I went to this procedure and um, I had some criticism about what he did and he was open to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, listen, mm, I would have like, you know, liked if this was that or what, whatever. Yeah. And then the next time he he took my he took what I was saying and understood what I was saying. I referred him to somebody else. And I'm not saying I trained him, but I loved that there was that interdisciplinary respect and collaboration that I was telling him, if you do this, then this will be easier for the baby or for the mom or whatever. And that, and that really worked. And he adapted what I adopted, what I said. Mm -hmm. And now there've been many, you know, we've networked a lot. So it's, it's been um, a good relationship. So my point to that is, you know, don't be afraid. Like, I think that so many of our, like, I guess we could call ourselves allied health professionals. We're not doctors. Mm -hmm. We don't have the MD. We don't, we're not dentists. Yeah. We don't have the doctor in front of our name. And that gives, we we have a little bit of, um, some of us, less confidence in our knowledge and our practices. And we, ha- we have to drop that and realize that there, 
they want to know too. Yeah. I like, think I, they want to know too. The main thing too is that um, working in a hospital with a lot of physicians, I also learned how to speak to physicians based on their personality. You have to cater what you're saying to the person you're speaking to. Everyone's not always receptive to the same information, even if it's not criticism. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that practice I had by trying to endorse my recommendations for patients where it didn't always align with what the physician wanted, that practice really helped me when I then went into the community to try to work with people who were already doing releases to talk about the cases Mm -hmm. I got. I got a couple of cases that were months after the release was done and it looked like it reattached and like trying to talk Mm -hmm. out with the provider who did the original release. You know, I think maybe because of XYZ symptoms, the parents reported prior, this patient really needed therapy first. Like, you know, I'm not, Mm -hmm. you are the physician, you can decide you want to do a release without therapy. But if they have these specific symptoms, usually they are going to need therapy. So if they can't lateralize their tongue within the range of motion of the restriction, if they can't elevate their tongue, if they can't get the palate contact, they really might not do that well with you releasing it because they're not going to naturally just know to go up. And I think that's where there's a lot of negativity about, oh, this one does a bad release or that one does a bad release. Right. It, it, it only takes a few negative experiences for people in the community to just be like, oh, don't go to that person. And right. um, since fostering the relationship with the first dentist where I was really able to, I was comfortable going in because he was so open to it. So open to, I want to know what you think. I want to know, you know, based on other releases you've seen, you know, how do you feel like this whole experience was? And then doing the cranial sacral therapy, I was able to practice doing the cranial sacral therapy on the patients before and during the release, which was very, very insightful for me uh, learning about the cranial sacral therapy. And, um, and wonderful for the patient. So for wonderful. Sure. And then I went to a few other offices and, you know, I was like, you know, I do this with someone else. Is it okay if I come? This is my patient that I've been working with. You know, uh, um, I think they are ready for a release, but I'd like to go. And they all really received it so well. Everyone whose office I went mm-hmm. to, to do it, they were, you know, where, where do you want to stand, Christina? Where do you need to be positioned to do what you want to do? They had a respect mm-hmm. of what I was going to do. And then they always, because I was there, you know, do you think I released, you know, do you like this release? Do you think this is okay? So that way too, in front of the patient, it was like we were mutually deciding and discussing something. And it was us working right. together, you know, and it made the patient feel more right. comfortable to have everyone there, especially if I did a lot of therapy with the patient before the dentist reported, they were so much calmer than the patients I've done that didn't have therapy. They, you know, they were- they feel like they're hanging out with an old friend, Yeah, right? They, they are comfortable. Yes. Yeah. So, so I think that- um, I know. I mean, everyone wants the best outcome for their patients. Yes. Yep. They just, there may be providers who don't yet know that there's a way to optimize things. And I, and I think that, and, you know, we do a lot of bashing, we meaning, you know, on Instagram, whatever, about dentists, doctors who aren't open yes. to what we're doing. Yeah. And it's not that, it's not that they're, you know, for the most part, they're not mean guys or girls, or they're not trying to be unprofessional. They just honestly don't know what they, what we know and they don't know. And when I say we, I mean us as therapists, 
so to speak, right? Yeah. Lactation professionals, SLPs, CST providers. If they haven't learned about that, and most likely they haven't, Mm -hmm. they don't even know what we can offer. Yeah. And they may think that we're crazy and because they just don't know, you know, and there have been times when, you know, you don't, you kind of don't blame them if you, if you think of it from that point of view. Um, so this education, this community building, um, I know for a fact that when, I mean, especially as an IBCLC, at least as an SLP, people have some idea what you do, but most people have no idea what an IBCLC is. Yeah. And I remember when um, our colleague, Dr. Avis, he asked me, Lisa, but what the heck do you do? And when I, he, he was at a presentation that I spoke at, and he understood what I do. Mm-hmm. And he was like in awe. He's, I had no idea there was someone that does that. Yeah. You know, because we just don't learn. No. We just we just don't learn what – like there should be a class the first day in medical, nursing, dental, whatever, of these are the roles and this is what they do. And why there is support to you. You know, like, you, right, like I went right, to school right. for six years total of formal education with a degree that I Mm -hmm. have in speech language pathology. I did a whole semester on just aphasia, you know, like they Mm -hmm. only learn about those topics fleetingly through their career unless they specialize in that neurological area, you know? So I do think that there is a, a gap still in most facilities with respecting ancillary staff and their knowledge. And uh, I Mm -hmm. think, you know, and also, Ancillary, yeah, Ancil- uh, also ancillary staff understanding what each other's roles are. Oh, yeah, for right? sure. Like, you know, I mean, I like I said, I didn't know what the speech language pathologist knew. Yeah. She didn't know what I knew. She just knew I was, like, annoying her. Well, that, I think that's <laughs> – The nurses don't didn't understand my role. Mm-hmm. The doctors were, like, until you, – you know how I got buy-in by a lot of the doctors? They – the ones that started having babies. Uh-huh. Then all of a sudden I was their friend because yeah. they needed my help, you know. But anyway, I I, I'm not bashing our, doctors. Our education know. system, though. Like, it's yes. if, if information is published and, and peer-reviewed, yes. it's peer-reviewed, which some people feel isn't even the best because it's also gatekeeping sometimes. There's, um, right. you know, I hear on the back end when I go to conferences that certain journals won't publish from certain people unless they have a PhD in their name and they've been published X amount of time. So even if they have mm-hmm. good validated information, it won't get published because they didn't meet the other criteria. And then it right. takes 10 to 15 years for that to go into practice. And in that 10 to 15 right. years, that information might have been advanced or invalidated or contradicted by another publication. So it's a very slow process to get people to respect work that's published and change practice and then getting mm-hmm. everyone else involved too. You know, there's so many publications that came out even just in the last couple of years that I feel like changed how I practiced and how mm-hmm. I decided, you know, how I was going to guide the patient in terms of prioritizing referrals. Like, you know, I really think sleep and breathing is the priority. And I think you should go mm-hmm. see the providers that'll help you breathe and sleep, figure that out objectively first before we get into something else like doing therapy when you can't breathe isn't going to get you anywhere. I could see you Mm -hmm. twice a week for a year. You probably still won't be able to breathe. You know, if there's Mm -hmm. an underlying cause that has to be mitigated medically and having that direct rapport with physicians, because originally I would send them, you know, to the ENT or to the pulmonologist 
And they would be like, no, you just need therapy, do therapy. So they'd come back and be like, they told me to do therapy. I'm like, well, did you tell them we did therapy for 12 weeks? Did you tell them we tried mm-hmm. all the, oh no, they, they, I didn't tell them that. So then having mm-hmm. the direct communicate, cause I would send notes, they wouldn't always see them or the parent wouldn't hand them. So, right. So part of that is them not understanding how, how the limitations of therapy, if there isn't range of motion yep. or vice versa. Right. So there's that interplay. So let's go back to the meetings okay. because the first time I walked in and saw, you know, literally a round table and our, our Christina's organization is called the airway round table, Staten Island airway round table. Yep. Right. And it's almost a round table. Cause you set up this tables and rectangles and it's at a local restaurant. That's got some AV, um, you know, capabilities. So we have, we kind of walk around and chat with each other. And then we have one or two or three presentations and then we have dinner and we chat and just meet each other and introduce each other. And I have met people in my local community in the last year that I had no idea were there. And I've been doing this work for a long time. And so the passion too that yeah. they have, they, the, everyone that yes. comes is so passionate to get good outcomes. You know, they, yes. they, some of them change their schedules to be able to come. Like they move mm-hmm. patients so that they could come. And right. to me, that was the most um, honoring thing to my, my goal. Cause I had talked about it every time I met someone like, you know, we all should just get together. We all should get together, seem disciplines you know, many different dentists, not just one, and many different speech therapists, not just one, because we have to really know what each other's doing to pair patients better. Like getting mm-hmm. to know everybody's personality. I have a patient like, oh, you would do better with that that dentist. You really should go there. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, now that I've got to know you myself, they have a much better, the way their offices and their staff, I think you would do really well there. Or, you know, I they are honest and say, I had a bad experience here. Oh, you know who really would pair well with your personality? Then this person. And I, I work closely right. and, with all of them. And people are surprised. Yeah. A lot of the patients will say, "Oh, I thought you only worked with so and so." I'm like, "Well, no, I work right. with everybody." You know, right? I, I Plus, work. there's other, yeah, other considerations as well. And in you know, building my team, I've thought about you know, um, insurance acceptance. You know, some providers accept insurance, yep. some won't. Some providers have more parental involvement in the procedure than others. And some people have, you have to travel a little bit more or the schedule might be less adaptable, you know, so there's those kinds of things as well. And that goes for not, you know, other ancillary um, or allied health professionals like OTs and PTs and chiros. And, you know, for some people, I love chiropractic, but sometimes when I mention chiro to a um, parent, I, I can see that they're not comfortable with that. Yeah. So like, you have to have a list of lots and lots and lots of types of providers so that the um, the family can choose what feels best for them. Because if if I just pre- refer to one person all the time and it didn't work for that family, then they'd be stuck with no one. So yeah. I provide a list and a little description of what the person provides. And yeah. usually there'll be a highlight that I, I like highlight thinking like, this particular baby probably should be seen by this particular provider. Yeah. You know, I, I do that kind of thing. But as far as the community, I mean, I, the energy in the room was excitement. Mm-hmm. Um, almost, it was almost like some people were breathing a sigh of relief that they had found other people who got it, 
even if we're not exactly using the same population, it was just this, this feeling of camaraderie, this feeling of community, this feeling of like, I don't know. I feel like we all take some energy from that into our own practices and, you know, and try, I tried to explain it to my, um, my daughter, when I was telling her how great it was, she's like, well, what was so great about it? I'm like, I can't even explain it. It just made you feel better to know that there are other people who have gotten through the difficult aspects of working in a field that's new and evolving and not necessarily accepted in the mainstream medical establishment yet. Yeah. And we're all doing it in our own places. And when you come together and realize that you're on the same paths, but you've just, just been missing each other and now you're connecting, you know? Yeah. Yay. You know? And to show that it's, it's so close to us. Like that's, you know, one of the things I tried to keep, some people come from Long Island, but I do know patients that drive all the way to Long Island for certain care. And then some come from Jersey. We do have patients that Mm -hmm. go over the bridge for their care. Mm -hmm. So I allow people to come as long as, well, they have to drive to it anyway. That's why it's in person and not virtual also, because Mm -hmm. I really think it does bring a certain vibe that everyone is physically present and also um, that they are local representations of their specialty. Um, And I do feel that it really did make a difference in meeting the people over the bridges, like, because they can also refer to each other. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're driving all the way to me and you're, you know, you're mm-hmm. always late and this seems stressful for you. Do you know there's someone that also specializes? Because, you know, when we went to the conferences, we would, I, I was the only one from Staten Island for the first probably six years at all the conferences I really went to that specialized in this area. There wasn't really anybody mm-hmm. else that local at all. It, it was always at least an hour drive if I met another provider. And then the speakers were always from other parts mm-hmm. of the country. Like, I can't refer to someone to te- like, go fly to Texas to right. get your assessment. Um, so I do think that this right, really right, is right. such a unique thing to bring it to Staten Island providers. Because a lot of people felt like, mm-hmm. we've talked about this, like no one out here gets this. No one out here cares. No one out here does this. And they were mm-hmm. doing it, but just not. And then, yeah, they were doing so, it, but they so weren't doing it just, so openly. Just to bring it back to how to do this. So, if somebody was starting out, so say there's somebody like you, who's a speech language pathologist in private practice, and they're um, Maybe they do some myo, you know, whatever. They're they're doing things differently than what they learned in school, mm-hmm. and they want to find people to collaborate with. What would what would be some you know one or two suggestions that you would say how how to get something like this started? The most successful piece to it was directly asking. I I really want to come to your office and observe what you're doing. I want to see what your evaluation process is. Can I come to, you know, my own patient? My patient is coming to you on Thursday. I can block my schedule. Can I come? And I've always been told yes. I've never been told no. And I think that was surprising too. I always thought people would be like, no, you can't see what I'm doing. Like it's my specialty. This doesn't pertain to you. Um, And then Mm -hmm. once you have that rapport, once that door is open, saying to them, you know, I was trying to get together to discuss this research article. I think it would be good if we all got together. And that's really how it formulated. And I was given such support by, 
you know, Allie and Lauren at Sensational Kids pushed me to do this because they knew I was passionate about it. Dr. Joe, Dr. Acker, Dr. Sinha, they all, Dr. Jordan, oh my God. They Because I, I, at one point during the year, I was like, listen, I want to get together. What day works for you? Can you do this day? What day of the week? And then I would let mm-hmm. it, you know, I'd put it on the wayside. Like once I had three people commit to a date, I just sent it out to everyone. We're all getting together to go over research. Once I committed to it, I was nauseous. I wanted to throw up that no one would show up. <laughs> and then, you know, Aww. I was also nervous too about like, who's paying for it? What's going to happen? Like if, if 10 people show up, I, right. I can't pay for 10 people. So the first meeting was right. a little mishmash. We did little notions and stuff. Um, but then, you know, Dr. Sinha said, you know, I'll sponsor it, Christina. You don't have to get crazy. Mm-hmm. I'll sponsor it. And then maybe that'll inspire other people to sponsor it. So he was our first sponsor. Mm-hmm. And I never thought I'd get to a stage of sponsorship. This is just a local thing. Right. And now we have, right. you know, we've had many sponsors that are listed on the website. Mm-hmm. And it's been an amazing process to see evolve because I, I honestly didn't feel confident, even though I did it. Like, I felt like. Right. Not going to work out. No one's going to come. People are going right. to be late. The speakers are, you know, who's going <laughs> to speak. But and every time I invited, because I didn't want to talk all the time either, because it's not, it's my meeting, but it's not my meeting. I don't want to be, you know. It's not your show. It's exactly. not your show. Yeah, yeah. So I tried yeah. very hard. At, you know, I had an interesting case with uh, a chiropractor and I said, can you present your side of the case? I had another interesting case with um one of the airway dentists out here, they presented their case. And then, you know, I asked the ENT now to present on something. I asked our PT to present on a certain therapy technique and how it pertains to breathing. And it all ties back mm-hmm. to that, that if you can't breathe properly, a lot of different avenues are affected. And everyone is now, I feel like, respecting that in a way that they didn't necessarily see it before. And everyone has been so yeah. honored to be invited to speak. Like, they're just so grateful. Like, you you really think I should talk to people about what I do? Like, yes, we all, we are all so talented at what we do. And, you know, is everyone perfect all the time? Never. But that doesn't mean that you're not worthy of presenting your knowledge and experience. We all have, even if you have two people with the same amount of time and the same education, they have completely different experiences with their patient. And that's where, mm-hmm. when you look at evidence-based practice, Clinical influence is a piece of it. Clinical experience is such a piece. So we have to learn from each other in that respect. And I think having conversation in an open forum in a respectful manner really fosters much more than the arguments on social media and peer-reviewed publications. And it gives real-time feedback for the provider. And then that, in turn, gives real-time changes for the patient. Right. And that's what we all want. Right. Yeah. So so um, I think going back to our first the first meeting that I went to and I thought this was great. It was like we're going to meet. And if you want to order dinner, this is how much it will be. Yeah. So um, I just want to get into real logistics, logistics so that people understand. Like, yeah, it was like it was that. And it was like, oh, fine. OK. So it, dinner's available. You know, you made it very clear. Dinner's available. It would be this much. You don't have to get dinner, but yep. we're going to meet. You know, it, dinner will be available as we're having the presentations, and and it worked out fine. Before, it's and good. that was the before you had a sponsor. Well, that so so the yeah. Very so first there was meeting though. The very first meeting, um, it was about a half hour before the meeting. And uh-huh. uh, well, that so I have to get my disclosure is that my husband owns the restaurant. 
Right. That helps. So but, that, but it know, doesn't that, have to be. That gave me, I knew what day of the week they were empty, which you, anybody who doesn't have that resource, um, you could just call a restaurant and say, I want to have a meeting. It's going to be 10 people. Do you have, some of them want you to, to, you have to order a minimum if you're taking up a table. Some of them, if mm-hmm. it's a Tuesday night and they're not busy, they don't really care. If you don't need service, we right. have the table, go sit in the corner. It's fine. Every out of 10 people, somebody orders something anyway. Um, so you should be able to reach out to a local establishment for a weeknight thing and try to see what you can work out with them. Because some places are just happy to have people in and that, they, you know, they yeah. did something nice for you. You would come back. Um, and, and you could also do this in somebody's conference room. Like it yes. doesn't have to be a restaurant. It doesn't have but to be a restaurant. The restaurant makes it feel... I don't know. It made it more social and more comfortable. Exactly. Non-territorial. And um, then on my end, you know, a lot of them, a lot of how I chose the restaurant wasn't just because it was my husband's restaurant. He was doing Super Bowl and I was sitting Mm -hmm. at the Super Bowl and he had TVs on every single wall all playing the Super Bowl. <laughs> and then with COVID, they opened a tent and they made this tent, this outdoor seating area. And again, for Super Bowl, they had TVs on every wall. And I said, you know, if you, you could have a conference here. And he was like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, people come and they'll do like, you know, talks about whatever. And I was like, yeah, but no, like I could, I could do a meeting here. And he was like, well, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, you could, if you're going to pay. <laughs> So the first thing I was like, um, I would just like to let you know, I don't know if anyone's going to pay. I don't know if anyone's going to order. So like right before the meeting happens, he goes, so you're telling me you're not going to have any food on the table. And I was like, well, can we get bread? <laughs> can you send bread and water? <laughs> you know, maybe people will order then. I don't know. But I really, I just want an hour, two hours of these people's time. We just need the table for two hours. So he ended up sending out something. I think it was like a mm-hmm. past hors d'oeuvres, not past hors d'oeuvres, like an appetizer plate family style and then a little thing mm-hmm. of desserts family style. And then by the last right. meeting we had that we had sponsorships and stuff, he said to me, he's like, so, you know, I don't think this would have happened if I hadn't given you that food because nobody comes back. If- <laughs> <laughs> and and just, just as an aside, the food is amazing. It's a great restaurant. So that, that helps too. It does. So um, Christina, to wrap up, is there anything that we didn't mention that, you know, I think we, we covered a lot of topics, but if there's anything that you're thinking about that you want to I think these these types of meetings and study groups, as much as it is easier with the internet now to to join a big organization that has on-demand and live events, if you don't know who's next door to you and you can't collaborate with who's right with you, you're not going to get very far in success for your patients because patients don't really, they may say they'll drive far for a treatment, but they, they're not going to be able to commit to it. We all have our own lives and we see it's hard to keep our own appointments. So to Mm -hmm. send them far when it is something you could force or close, I would definitely put energy towards that and don't, don't get dismayed or, you know, feel, feel like you're failing. If the first meeting you do try to have doesn't go well, if the first meeting you have is only your own discipline, if it's only dentists and it's only speech therapists, make it the long-term goal to bring other people in. And this meeting has fostered, I was invited Mm -hmm. then to speak at the local dental association about what I specialize in and about interesting cases because the dentist came to the meeting and they were like, wow, this is really interesting. And this pertains to what we do. And there are other people that would want to learn. So, you know, be prepared to, to open the door to other speaking events. But I do think that if we could get, 
in every little local area, an interdisciplinary professional group, it would be so life-changing for all our patients and our medical establishment. I do think continuity of care would, would triple in the success of it for the patients, mm-hmm. for sure. Well, I think, yeah, I think that's, that's an amazing way to end. Thank you so much for your time. And I'll be talking to you later because I have, we have a, I have a patient that's coming today that I have to ask you about after, (laughs) (laughs) as we always do, as we always do collaborate. Um, So thank you so much for your time, Christina. And um, there'll be information in the show notes, your website and more information about you. Okay. Perfect. Thank Thank you you so much. much. I'm glad we finally made this happen. (laughs) Yes, me too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Tongue Tie Experts podcast. Check out the show notes for useful links about the topics we discussed and for ways to follow us on social media. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And if you enjoyed listening, we'd love it if you'd rate, review, and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.